1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Tofer, Principal Architect of Tofer Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer@toferarchitecture.com. at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Paul Kidder to talk about his book, Minoru Yamasaki and the Fragility of Architecture. Paul Kidder, PhD, is professor of philosophy at Seattle University, where he has taught courses on a variety of subjects, including philosophy of art and architecture. Paul, thank you very much for being here with me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure's all mine. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Well, I was uh, an undergraduate at the University of Washington here in Seattle, and uh, I got my PhD from Boston College and when I was at Boston College, one of the areas that I studied was philosophy of architecture and also ethics in urban affairs, so these are not, uh, these are not mainstream fields for a philosopher to be studying. But uh, we were in a, a, a core program there called the Perspectives Program. We were actually teaching these subjects to first-year undergraduates, so we were trying to make them mainstream topics in undergraduate education. Oh,
0: very interesting. And so, kind of want to dive right in. Then I think the question you've probably been asked quite a bit, especially whenever someone writes a book about a specific architect. But I think. More so in this case, you know, why a book about Yamasaki? I think it's no secret that most of us know his work, but you could quiz any architecture architecture student, and they probably didn't know they knew him. Right. They didn't know they knew him. I've asked that question of many, many
1: people. I say, I'm writing a book on Minoru Yamasaki. And uh, I say, do you know who that is? No, I don't know who that is. I said, well, he was the architect of the World Trade Center. Oh. Right? right. Yes. Uh, so that's a very common experience. And it's part of what intrigued me uh, about this subject. I, uh, it was really, of course, 20 years ago after 9 11 that I started reading in newspapers and such the uh, story of Yamasaki. And I was intrigued uh, by it, uh, partly by the ironies that are uh, present in that story. For example, you know, he intended the World Trade Center as a symbol of peace, but it had been destroyed by horrific acts of violence. Right. And he had been influenced by Islamic architecture, but his towers were destroyed by Islamic militants. And, you know, also his most famous other project, the pruitt Igo housing project in St. Louis, yes, had also been demolished under tragic cir- circumstances. So this is the irony that people point out a great deal that, that, that here's an architect best known for buildings that are destroyed and all these <laughs> other ironies. So, um, so I wanted to read more about this. And uh, I looked for you know, the big comprehensive book that there always is about an architect. Uh-huh. And there wasn't one, you know, there was a book that he had written back in the seventies. That's pretty selective. It's not really comprehensive. Uh, and so uh, I patiently waited for this book to appear and I waited uh, about 10 years and uh, it hadn't come out. So meanwhile, I just, I started noticing all these connections that I had to Yamasaki Uh for example, as a child, uh, I was a big fan of his uh, Pacific uh, Science Center here in Seattle University of yeah, so the, right. the Federal Science Pavilion for the uh, Century 21 Exposition. And, you know, I, as a child, boy, I was just a fantasy place, right? You know, I had all those pools. And you could uh, you could get pennies from your mother to throw in the pools for luck. You know, it's like the luckiest place on earth. The pools are everywhere. Uh, but and then uh, as an adult, you know, I teach at Seattle University, and I I would commute by his Seattle buildings, his towers, Rainier Tower and IBM building. And then I learned, you know, he's he he grew up right down the street from my campus, and I learned that he had. Uh, been a student at the UW, like I was, the University of Washington. And he had also later influenced campus architecture there, i.e. buildings in which I had studied. Right. Uh, And then finally, I learned that I had spent the first three years of my life in one of his housing projects in St. Louis. Hmm. So I felt like, man, he's been following me around my whole life. (laughs) And, and, you know, and I started to think, gee, you know, maybe maybe I'm getting signs that I need to write this book. And uh, but but I'm not an architectural historian. You know, I'm a philosopher of architecture. So it wasn't me. I didn't feel like I was the right person to write that, that big book. But I could maybe write a very interpretive book that would have kind of philosophical angles on some of these questions and ironies in the story. And so I started researching, and that's when I met uh, Dale Geyer, who was working on that big book that I wanted to read. And uh, Dale was very helpful to me. Uh, he, he, he took me around to buildings, and uh, we, we shared ideas. And, and then I put my project down while I waited for his book to be published. And it's a wonderful, comprehensive, detailed book. Uh, but uh, I still felt that I was doing something a little different. So I went ahead with my project and eventually uh, came out with this book.
0: That's quite the uh, backstory. <laughs> yeah. And so, of course, you had kind of touched on a few things I want to uh, get back to. I do think it's worth mentioning for our listeners. Of course, a lot of my questions are going to focus on the Trade Center and the pruitt Igo building. He does have a pretty extensive library that I wasn't aware of, and I'm sure many aren't. But of, you know, I just I feel like it's worth mentioning that yeah, we're going to talk about those two a lot, but there's quite a bit of other stuff that wasn't yeah part of a tragedy. He, he claimed there were
1: 250 buildings, right? That they had done, and I'm not. I think that sounds a little high to me, but <laughs>
0: it's, it is quite a catalog. And so, of course, you know, the one that I think when you tell everyone about the World Trade Center, that's the one they recognize. But I think if you were to talk to any, even any architecture student, the pruitt Igo building, of course, very significant in architectural discourse. <laughs> It's often cited as, you know, the death of modernism, sadly, when those buildings were demolished. Yes. And so you had mentioned kind of the, the, there's quite a few ironic points to the Trade Center that I never really thought of. And I think you make a good case that there's quite a few ironies in the pruitt Igo project as well. Yes. And so I was wondering if you could walk us through that a little bit.
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. The, so the pruitt Igo project was one of these massive efforts to address the problem of uh low-income urban housing uh, in St. Louis, and uh, it was a series of uh, high-rise slab, uh, brick brutalist buildings (laughs) that, when Yamasaki was designing them, that was the mainstream idea, you know, the the radiant city from Le Corbusier, the Mm -hmm. towers in the park, and, and the way you could be very efficient and but have these wonderful landscaped spaces between buildings and you compare that to tenements and it's like luxury apartments. Uh, But for various reasons, uh, it didn't work out that the life that they imagined for these buildings did not materialize. And in fact, there were all kinds of problems. Many of these problems came to be attributed to design. And that's when uh, Charles Jenks attacked modernism. This is what he's saying is that it's, it's an abstract ideal that doesn't work out in the concrete. So Yamasaki had all kinds of interesting award-winning design modifications to this building, including common areas and these mm-hmm. breezeways. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that he saw right away When he went back to visit the building shortly after the completion, he already realized that there was something wrong, that they had missed Uh, the idea of community. And how do you create community in uh, spaces like this? So uh, and he had been involved before in a whole debate about whether this could work. You know, it, it it was a compromise. Uh, but on, on, you know, on the one hand, you say, well, we know high rise housing can work because there are people living in high rises all over the place. Right. And, uh, right. and they're actually, you know, they're, they're a trend now that people are yes. uh, choosing them. So, you know, it's a real puzzle to get into is to, was it really the design? Was it really the concept? Was it really modern architecture? that was the problem here or were there a lot of other factors and when you start looking for other factors oh you find a whole list of them
0: yes and so I know I I always try to address my own bias I know as an architect I I have heard the case before that you know just one example the elevator that stops every few floors yeah supposed to encourage community but it was argued that it created unsafe spots for crime to happen and so, right. but as a practicing architect, so I do appreciate in the book you present the counter argument that I think that part gets a lot of publicity. But what a lot of people don't realize is the the cutting of funding, the complete corners being cut during construction, and value engineering that happens on every project, at least that I'm involved in. Yes, and so I do appreciate again, with my own bias, that you make the argument that there's quite a bit more that I don't think a lot of people are hearing about with that project.
1: Yeah, there was a tremendous amount of value engineering that didn't produce much value <laughs>
0: yes it never did they so. actually
1: yeah, they actually paid dearly for uh for that project a lot of overruns yes but uh but they cut many corners and yamasaki was aware of that and uh, very frustrated with that but then the, this big issue that uh that the federal money there was federal money to put the buildings up and there was federal money to eventually tear them down but the maintenance of the buildings which is really crucial yes. was a, a local matter and uh, the city didn't particularly want to use funds they didn't really feel they had funds to put into this kind of maintenance and then this is where racial bias comes in because yes. uh these projects were becoming predominantly african american residents and uh And, uh, you you know, people in St. Louis are saying, wait a minute, we haven't we done enough for black people, right? We just (laughs) built these great uh, buildings and then now they want more money. So, so, uh, so then uh, how are you going to get that money? Well, you raise the rents and then, you know, you push people out and then you've got these unoccupied buildings and what's happening in those. So these are all problems.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And so you had mentioned the fact that, you know, kind of an unforeseen consequence, the idea of racial bias. And so that kind of makes that kind of brings me to a segue to something else I think is very important in the book that I think our listeners would would should definitely read about. And that is, you know, so many people know his works, Prue Digo, definitely the Twin Towers. And I but I don't think a lot of people realize, and I know even myself, I did not realize in all my seven years of architecture school you know yamasaki is an asian architect who was practicing and doing all these high profile projects during a time period when anti asian sentiment was at its at its highest with especially with even some drastic measures like the camps
1: yes yes and you can find this pattern all the way through his career oh uh, one of the reasons after uh college one of the reasons that he left the pacific northwest was because of the experience of of, of the area as extremely prejudiced right. against asian americans so he wanted to go to new york well you go to new york to make your make your mark in the world right but right. uh uh but also uh he wanted to escape the prejudice of the northwest he wanted a more cosmopolitan city where he might be accepted more now he of course encountered that uh, that prejudice now after Pearl Harbor, right? Uh, and uh, he he was an activist for a while, and uh, and he uh, he worked to uh, try to prevent prejudice in New York City the way discrimination was happening there. And then when the internment happened, uh, he brought his family out to New York to live in his with his wife in this uh, small apartment. And uh, so that was all there. But then during that same period, you know, he had a project of, of building a, a military base designing a huge project to So he was trusted, uh, as well as discriminated against. But it goes all the way through Then when he gets to Detroit, he's redlined. And if you start looking at the way his works are received and so forth, you can begin to see a pattern of potential uh, anti-Asian sentiment there.
0: Uh, Yes, and and so as you said, I think you had mentioned his activism, and I think something else, and I'm going to paraphrase a quote right out of your book, you do mention that something he struggled with his whole career was he does embrace Asian architecture sort of subtly in a lot of his projects, but at the same time, in order to keep his high-profile work, he sort of had to distance himself. And again, that's a big paraphrase of the quote.
1: Yeah, well, he was definitely doing both of those things. Uh, he was trying to embrace his his Japanese heritage and also flee it. And I don't think that is terribly unusual for an Asian American, that, that you kind of fall in the middle. Because if you try to be, uh, in his case, Japanese, if you try to be Japanese, then you're criticized for not being authentic enough. And uh, uh, if you try not to be Japanese, well, then, people look at your name and your appearance and so forth and they say oh no you're japanese so he went back and forth uh he i think he he experienced both of those things he tried to uh he greatly admired japanese styles traditional japanese architecture and uh, just loved that uh and then and and tried to bring it into his work in sometimes subtle sometimes obvious ways but also then haunted by that feeling well it's not really japanese you know it's uh i'm not it's not really uh my training and uh so uh what i can do is something that is somewhat japanese uh, and then his critics come in and say it's faux japanese right it's superficial japanese uh, and, then, and then he, but he was not exclusive to that tradition. So he also wanted to be cosmopolitan. He wanted to be a world architect, right? Drawing on all kinds of traditions. And he had actually been trained in this way that an architect should be able to see the history of architecture as a treasure trove for uh, finding all kinds of fabulous ideas uh, for buildings.
0: And so, you know, we, we keep talking about the Twin Towers. So again, that's a you know, very big, impressive, high-profile project to win. And so it's interesting that he won it at a time when you would never assume, as you said, a Japanese architect would win such a project. Not to mention, I think you go into a lot of detail on just how unlikely it seems that he actually got that project, considering, you know, everyone he competed against are some of the most famous architects in our yes. history. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, and but i don't think i think he won that job on his merits right uh there are some there are some uh suspicious interpretations that uh, the port authority wanted somebody they could manipulate that sort of thing and i don't interesting yeah i don't buy those interpretations when you get into the actual proposals and the uh the story that's told by the journalists uh in uh, the book, City in the Sky, is a very compelling story. It really shows you uh, that the uh, officials of the Port Authority were really captivated by the beauty of a project that he had done in Seattle that, well, we talked about it, the Pacific Science Center. Right. They, uh, they thought that this building, which is, uh, it has these wonderful... Uh, spaces where you have flat platforms that sort of float in the air or on the water. And it's all done in a kind of modernized Venetian style that, and has these uh, enormous Gothic or modern Gothic arc, arches to it. And, uh, and, and it was just kind of an enchanting space. And so one of the officials who visited that got this feeling, well, this is the kind of feeling that we would love to have uh, in our massive project. And in a way, it could balance the scale right. uh, the, of, the, of the building. And that theme, you know, that motivation, I see happening all the way through. If you read the Yamasaki's proposal for the building, it makes that case very mm-hmm. compelling. Uh, So I think he won on his merits.
0: I would agree. And so, of course, everything. So, you know, again, I'll disclose my bias. I'm a big fan of his work and his architecture. And so, of course, you know, we're talking about it all positively, not to mention, you know, the lasting impact of his buildings, particularly the Twin Towers. But I do think it's worth discussing that at the time they were not nearly as universally loved as maybe they are now. In fact, I don't think I was aware. I don't think anyone would be aware of kind of how controversial they were while they were being designed and constructed.
1: Yes, uh, I would say that at the beginning of the design process, there was a lot of enthusiasm, right. including for Yamasaki's vision, which he articulated very well. There was, a, there was an engineering vision that was to be done by this tube form uh, that the buildings would take on where, where the exterior walls are actually helping hold up the building and you're looking at the structure when you look at that exterior. Uh, and then also uh, the design concept, which, which you know, the, the European plaza feel that it would have, all of right. that was appealing, even to critics uh, who could be critical of Yamasaki. <laughs> but when that finally was finished, there were a lot of compromises. And, uh, and you might even say, I think people certainly do say, that it just didn't work. Uh, I, I was in the Yamasaki Archives at Wayne State University and I came across an exchange between Yamasaki and Ada Louise Huxtable at the New York Times. Right. And, and she had uh, she had panned the building when it was finished. And she said it doesn't express structure so much as it tarts it up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and she was she was great with the epithets, right? And uh, he wrote her a letter trying to, trying to explain everything, uh, the, the, the engineering vision, the design vision, everything. He's trying to make his case to her. And she wrote back and she said, I understand all of that. I just don't think it works. And uh, she said, you're the architect and I'm the critic and it's an honest parting of ways. So I, she never meant anything personally, but she just didn't think it worked. And, that, and that's a very uh, common story with the World Trade Center. And I certainly, I think it gets overblown. I think uh, people are too harsh on it, yes. but there is there is certain basis for that. Uh, I'm very sympathetic with the intentions, but I tend to feel that uh, the scale of the project overwhelmed it and uh, and there were compromises such as putting all the shops and so forth that were going to help mm-hmm. activate this plaza putting those all underground and uh, and then Yamasaki was stubborn in some ways that weren't weren't helpful like Leslie robertson tried to get him to mi- build some things to mitigate the wind in the plaza <laughs> and yamasaki they didn't like what that he didn't like what that would do visually right so right he he nixed that and then it was windswept and got criticized for that.
0: <laughs> it's it's interesting. I I know uh, when the Freedom Tower was going through its design proposal, that had its own share of controversy and compromises. So apparently nothing can escape that in that area.
1: No, I mean they were they were under even you know far more pressure than Yamasaki. Yeah, absolutely. Because- because when yamasaki was designing the world trade center it was not to be a symbol of the whole nation right yes <laughs> it was just a building in lower manhattan but uh freedom tower you know that carried so much weight and it just doesn't surprise me that the controversy was enormous and heated uh, Absolutely. that was a tough
0: yeah and so as I said before, to, our, to, to everyone listening, you know, I'll encourage them to get a copy as there are quite a few images and projects that, you know, we can't verbally describe. And, and so uh, one thing that I wanted to ask about, <coughs> excuse me, let me just jot that down, is, uh, you know, again, so I, I've been to the museum of the, you know, 9-11. And again, you know, while they talk about the project, I, I again, unless I was just not observant, they don't talk about Yamasaki that much. And so, again, even at, you had mentioned in the book, you know, when the Trade Center came down, all of a sudden, architectural, you know, criticism and even architecture itself came to the forefront, which doesn't often happen. I'm, I'm willing to admit that even as an architect. Uh, yeah, right. And so I guess the question I have is, so, you know, even, even then, Yamasaki still didn't get the limelight, I would say. And so, you know, with all this time that's passed, at least in my opinion, it seems like he's sort of surfaced a little bit. You know, at one point yes. there was zero books about him. Now there's still not many, but there seems to be a couple. So, I, you know, right. why, why the resurgence? Um,
1: well, it's something that I anticipated as we approach the, the 20th anniversary. I see. Uh, I thought that this regained some attention as he did after 9-11. Right. And I'm seeing that. You're seeing it in the press now. But... What, what I wanted, uh, and I think what Dale Geyer wanted, is um, when this attention comes to Yamasaki, maybe we could uh, not just repeat the same tropes right. uh, from the 1960s or the 1970s. Maybe we could rethink things. And Dale has approached that by uh, digging into just the information, right? To right. get the information out there, his his book is jam packed with this enormous amount of facts and stories and background. And, uh, and then uh, when his book came out, Martin Filler reviewed it in the New York Review of Books. And he said that, uh, that, that Dale wanted to re- reinvigorate the reputation of Yamasaki, but hadn't made enough of a case Uh, laid out a lot of information, but really didn't justify why why we should appreciate Yamasaki more than we have. And, you know, so I'm pushing a little harder against the critics. And I'm not doing it by simply trying to glorify Yamasaki or defend him exactly, but I'm trying to go deeper. And I'm a philosopher, so I like to go deep. Uh, i'm trying to take a socratic approach where i start asking questions about you know the assumptions that people bring to yamasaki like when you say when you say his architecture is weak or when you say it is um retrograde or when you say it is uh feminine you know uh, what's really going on there? What do those words mean? Where do they come from? So I, I let my philosophical reflection uh, flow freely. And Absolutely. I think that yeah, I think that gets us to a deeper conversation about these things.
0: Yeah, you know, and I, I'm guilty of it as an architect. Even when I talk to other authors, I tend to focus on buildings. It's kind of what we do. And so Yamasaki himself, again, I wasn't very aware. He had quite there's some interesting stuff about him. Uh, you know, he literally worked himself to health concerns and still worked while in a hospital bed, even while stressed out to the point of being in a hospital bed. I think uh, not a lot of that came to light, at least for me. So I think that's very interesting. And so, of course, there's just so much more we could talk about. But so I don't want to keep you here talking to me all day. But so one question I have is, you know, especially at the timing with the 20th anniversary, though, but since the book has you know, come out, what uh, you know, what's your next project? What has kept you busy?
1: Well, I work on philosophy of architecture and ethics in urban affairs, and it's really the latter uh, area where I'm turning at the moment. And another author that I have been engaged with for many years is uh, Jane Jacobs and the death -hmm. death and life of great American cities. So I'm working on a book on uh, ethics in the urbanism of Jane Jacobs, and I, uh, I want, to, I want to have a scope where I look at uh, not just her writings, but her activism and how uh-huh. some of the ideas came out of that activism. There's good research on that out there now. But then I also wanna bring it up to the contemporary uh, situation where uh, how are Jane Jacobs ideas playing out in uh, urban design and innovations today? So if any of your listeners are engaged in any projects like that i'd love to hear from them
0: a very a very interesting perhaps we'll talk again in the future someday who knows you know another book i think every architecture student read and absorbed for a while so yes and had,
1: but and, one uh, that has a co- a complex history right oh yes you know by yeah. the 1990s everybody knew jane jacobs and took her for granted right quite a bit uh, of con-
0: controversy there yes
1: <laughs> yeah but uh but she, i mean but she said, I don't think the books, she, she wrote a preface in the 90s that said, I don't think this book has had much influence, really. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds very interesting, I said, and uh, yes, to any listeners, hopefully they take the call to action. So, Paul, I want to thank you very much for being here today and talking to me. Okay, great to talk to you, Brian. Oh, same here. And so everyone listening, the book is Minoru Yamasaki and the Fragility of Architecture. To all my listeners, thank you for listening and have a great day.